I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 3. The Spirit of the Lord uh, spoke to me some months ago toward the latter part of uh, 2012 and impressed upon me to, to teach beginning in the, the new year. And we started it last Sunday, got a little jump on it, but uh, uh, to teach a series on the, the Spirit-led life. And uh, we'll be saying some things that I'm sure you've heard before, but there's some directions that the Lord has given me that uh, that might be some things that you haven't heard before. And and uh, we hope that um, that it'll help you to understand things so that you can walk in the fullness of what God has for you. The... Um, the way that the Lord originally spoke to me about this was concerning these scriptures that we're going to use as a text scripture, and we'll use these throughout, uh, at least refer to them. I, I, don't, I don't know to what degree, but anyway, we'll refer to them because it's the foundation for what we're doing in this series. In John chapter 3 and verses 23 and 24, Jesus is speaking to the, to the woman at the well of Samaria, and he says certain things to her. He shows by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost, that he is sent from God, that he's a prophet. She recognizes that. He finally identifies himself to her as the Messiah. But there's a question that comes up about where do we worship? She says uh, there's a discrepancy between my people and the Jews about do we worship in Mount Sinai or do we worship at uh, Jerusalem? And Jesus said uh, in verse 23, he really skirts the issue. He, he says that salvation is of the Jews so they're right on the issue, but but he says something that's really more important that uh, that supersedes uh, her real question. He says this, verse twenty three. He said, "But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to work to worship Him." Now, when he says the hour is coming, now is, he's got to be talking about his day. He's got to be talking about the hour or the day related to Jesus. Well, certainly there was an element of truth to that while Jesus was here on the earth when he was uh, ministering in what we know of as the four Gospels, but during his earthly ministry, because he identifies that it's already, it already began. So he's, he's basically saying, everything changes with me. Thank God everything changed with Jesus. So he's saying the hour is coming and now is. So he's talking about something that existed then, which was during his earthly ministry, but also a time to come, which is our day, the day of the church the day following his resurrection when we could enter into salvation, the fullness of salvation by being born again, being recreated in spirit and walk as the people of God here on the earth. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about our day. Now notice what he says about our day. He says the hour is coming and now it is. In other words, this is for us. When the true worshipers. Now, folks, if there are true worshipers, that must mean there are false worshipers. Otherwise, how could you distinguish true the, something as being true from something else? In other words, he's saying there's going to be a counterfeit worship. Hello? That is what he's saying, isn't, he? isn't it? He's saying there is a true worship, but if there is a true worship, then there has to be something that's false or counterfeit. He's saying the hour's coming now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, that defines what true worship is for me. True worship is worship in spirit, worship in truth. Anything that's not in spirit, not based upon or according to the truth, is the false, is the counterfeit. So he says, the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now, folks, can we all agree that the Bible is real clear on saying that God doesn't change? 
Okay, so if the Father was seeking something when Jesus was talking, he's still seeking the same thing today, isn't he? I mean, God was real clear on this. He said in the Old Testament, I am God, I change not. How do you argue with that? I mean, he is God. He should know. I am God, I change not. So if the Father sought people to worship him in spirit and truth in Jesus' day, then he's still seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth today. Are we agreed? Again, if somebody sees a different point of view on that, I'd be open to hear it. I just don't see how you make that argument. Seems pretty clear. So he says, the hour comes and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Verse 24, God is a spirit. Notice he does not say God is spirit. It says God is a spirit. In other words, God's not like a cloud that floats in the air. He is a spirit. He has a form. I don't think we could go so far as to say he lives in a body because the Bible doesn't tell us that. But it says he is a spirit. And they that worship him must. Everybody say must. Jesus is not making a suggestion. Jesus is not presenting what we might call a good idea. Jesus is saying, here's the way that it works, and here's the only way that it will work. They that worship God, God is a spirit, and they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, if you're doing it some other way, you're really not worshiping God. You can claim whatever you want to. You can call it whatever you want to. You can put some catchy title on it if you like. But what Jesus is saying is there's only one way to worship God, and that's in spirit and truth. Can I ask you a question? How much do we hear that taught about in church? I mean, that should be what we grow up on, shouldn't it? I mean, if if it's that important, and Jesus seems to indicate that it is, then shouldn't that be what we cut our teeth on spiritually? Go ask any preacher anywhere, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? Anybody have any idea what answer you'll get? I don't. You ask me, I'll tell you what it is, but I don't know what anybody else is going to say about it. I've never heard anything taught about it. I certainly didn't hear anything in the church I grew up in. As a matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say most people don't even know what being a spirit is or what the Bible really says about it. Now, let's let's talk about this. What I want to talk to you about this morning is worshiping in spirit. Now, let me say right offhand, charismatics are great at having an answer for this. Charismatics say that means worshiping God or singing in tongues. Folks, it means a lot more than singing in tongues. As a matter of fact, because they've substituted something that they think instead for what is real, you've got so many charismatics who are singing and speaking in tongues that are living lives that are very... Uh, very little different from the unsaved. You know, it's always amazed me how somebody that was spirit-filled could live an ungodly life. How do you do that? You carry the Holy Ghost with you into sin? So charismatics are real good about saying, well, worshiping in spirit means worshiping in tongues. No, it's not. You may do that as a byproduct of worshiping in spirit, just out of a heart of love or appreciation, but that's not what it is. Well, what is it? Let's talk about what it is. Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to have to cover some groundwork and go over some of the things that we talked about last week. If you weren't with us last Sunday morning, I would encourage you to get the, uh, the tape or go to the website and download it or listen to it or whatever method works for you. 
because we laid a foundation of man being an eternal spirit. We may cover some of it again limitedly this morning just for the sake of continuity, but there'll still be a lot of things in there that, uh, that it would be good for you to hear. Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost. And notice what he says in verse 23. He said, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Not holy, H-O-L-Y. He's not talking about a, a condition of sanctification. He's talking about completeness. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. Well, so he's going to talk about the completeness of man then, isn't he? He said, And I pray, God, your whole, entire spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, defines the man's makeup. He is spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. Man is a three-part being. He's made in the image of God. Part of that being made in the image of God means man is three parts, just like God has three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the world will disagree with this. The world's real good about saying man is soul and body. And there's a reason why they say that. There's a reason why that's their position. We'll discuss that as we go. But please notice that the Bible says that man is spirit, soul, and body. Now, the word spirit and soul are kind of difficult for us to uh, to make a, um, uh, a one phrase or one definition catches all. Because there are places in the Bible where the word soul is used where it's talking about the spirit. And you have to read the context to see that it is. There are other places in the Bible where the word soul is used and it's talking about the entirety of man. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, Peter is talking about Noah and his family. He says there were eight souls saved by water. Now, in its strictest sense, the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. But is that all of the eight people that were saved? Weren't their bodies saved too? The Bible says the body without the spirit is dead. So if their bodies were saved and they were still alive, then their spirits had to have been saved too. Why does Peter say then by the Holy Ghost that there were eight souls saved by water? He's using the word soul as in, in a general sense, saying that there were eight people saved in the flood by the ark. So you've got to be careful about just making a, a, a snap judgment or a snap decision or a snap definition about here's what this word always means because because sometimes these words are used interchangeably however we know the spirit and soul can't be the same for one reason because paul identifies that man is three parts spirit soul and body man is a spirit that's the eternal part of man that's the part of you that lives on when the body dies the soul is the mind the will and the emotions now it seems to me I don't know any better way to describe this, but it seems to me that just like the body has a head, the spirit has a soul. Because we see in Luke chapter 17, for example, Luke chapter 16, I guess it is, where it talks about the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus telling the story about one being in Abraham's bosom, the other being in in hell. We see both of their souls intact. Their minds are still operational. I, you know, turn with me, Luke chapter 16. Rather than just referring to this, I think we better point some things out. Because I, I have to be careful that um, I assume you know what I know, and so we can just accept it as a baseline and go forward. Not everybody does. Not everybody has, well, we're all at different places. People come in at different times and under different circumstances. So there may be things that, that, that we take for granted that you haven't heard. So let's let's cover some of this. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 16, 
Beginning in verse 19, there was a certain rich man. Please notice the word certain. This cannot be a parable if Jesus uses the word certain. Certain means this is a real deal. Parables are the kingdom of God is like unto a man who planted seed into the ground. A parable is something that represents something else. When Jesus said there was a certain rich man and a certain man named Lazarus, he's talking about two real people. So he's, re- he's revealing something by the Holy Ghost to us about how things worked in his day. It's a little different now because there is no Abraham's bosom. Those people have been caught up into, into heaven. That's what it means in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says Jesus led captivity captive. He took all those Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom with him into heaven after he offered his blood as a sacrifice. But here's how it worked in Jesus' day. It said there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring, the beggar in other words, desiring to be led, uh, fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Didn't say anything about the rich man being carried away, did it? And in hell, he, the rich man, lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot... Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I think he's speaking of Jesus there. Now, let me, let me point out a couple of things. We see that both bodies, the rich man and Lazarus' body, were, were buried. It tells us that the rich man was buried. We have to assume the same thing happened to Lazarus' body. He was poor, so he probably had a pauper's grave or whatever the case was. But both of their bodies are, into the, are placed into the earth in some way, some form, right? So what part of them is alive? What part of them continues to exist? See, we think of death as being, we think of death in a natural sense as uh, being the cessation of existence. And death is never referred to as the cessation of existence. There's no such thing as the cessation of existence, a failing to cease evermore. Your spirit is eternal. It's going to live on when your body dies. The only question is, where is it going to live? That's why it's so important to preach the gospel. Now, I'm sure that the rich man wouldn't have been interested to hear about eternity while he was here on the earth enjoying life and doing all the things that he did with his money and and so forth. Now all of a sudden that he's in hell, he's real interested in eternity. Don't let people put you off by saying, well, don't put your religion off on me. Folks, we're not talking about religion. We're talking about heaven and hell. Now, if somebody rejects it, that's up to them. But we need to at least give them the opportunity to hear That's what Jesus is saying when he says, go preach the gospel to every creature. This guy is now concerned about his five brothers. Don't let them come here. Why? Because he's such a good guy? Folks, if he was a good guy, notice what Abraham said. One of the first things he said uh, uh, said to the rich man is he said, remember 
Well, if he can remember, that means his mind's still intact. Right? I mean, what do you remember with? His mind's still operational. His mind's still functional. He recognizes Lazarus. He recognizes Abraham. How can you do that without a mind that's operational and functional? His mind's still working. Now, your mind is not a part of your spirit. It's connected to it, but your mind's a part of your soul. How do we know? Well, there are several scriptures that tell us that. We'll give you one example that I'm sure you're familiar with. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. So he's saying there's a difference between the heart and the mind. Furthermore, the Bible says in Proverbs that wisdom rests in the heart of the man that has understanding. Wisdom is of the heart of the spirit, understandings of the mind. Some people reject God because they can't figure him out. Folks, there's a lot more to God than what you can figure out. That's where wisdom comes in. First step of wisdom is realizing I don't have it all figured out. That's what's called the fear of the Lord. God knows more than me in everyday language. So he says, Abraham, uh, it says, Abraham said to the rich man, remember. What does he tell him to remember? He said, remember what things were like in life, in this physical realm. You enjoyed good things and Lazarus enjoyed evil things. Now things are reversed. His point very simply is, did you do anything to help Lazarus? You want Lazarus to come down there and help you dip the tip of his finger in water and cool your tongue because you're tormented into the flame. That tells me emotions are still intact too. He's tormented. Torment is emotional, isn't it? At least it can be. A part of his torment has to do with the, the fate of his brothers. There's emotions in play there. So his mind is in place. His emotions are operational. His will is functional because he wills for Abraham to send Lazarus to help him, to cool his tongue. So you got the mind, the will, and the emotions all functional, all operational, and all present in this story. Well, what are those? Those make up the soul. So you got both spirit and soul living on in eternity. Man is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. The only thing that's changed for this guy is he's changed his location to where he's living. He's not living in a body anymore. His body is buried. But he still lives on, both spirit and soul. Can you see that? Now, we know that spirit and soul are not the same thing. Turn with me over to first. Uh, um, now, turn with the Hebrews chapter 4. We'll, we'll skip one and go to another. Hebrews chapter 4. I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. Whoever it was, however, if you don't agree with that, whoever it was is certainly led and inspired by the Holy Ghost to write. And so notice what the Holy Ghost says to us about spirit and soul. Notice in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Folks, if the soul and the spirit were the same, you couldn't divide them. And the Holy Ghost says you can divide soul and spirit. And actually it says there's only one thing that can do that, and that's the Word. There's only one thing that can divide soul and spirit, and that's the Word. Now let's look at a couple other scriptures regarding the soul. Look with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 21. I'm going to quote from the King James and then give you another translation on this that's a little bit clearer, at least to me. 
It says, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness of naughtiness and super, uh, lay apart from you all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Thank you, translators. That just rolls right off your tongue, doesn't it? I mean, it just, just ministers to your heart. One translation I saw, and I'm not real sure about the, the, uh, the grammatical translation part of it or the accuracy, but I, it really makes the point. It says, quit making excuses for wrong living and receive the word with meekness. <laughs> I like that. Quit making excuses for living wrong and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, here's the interesting part of that verse to me. I mean, there's a lot of good things in it. But the interesting part to me is he's talking to Christians who are saying their souls haven't been saved. He's saying the word is able to save their souls. Why didn't he say the word did save your soul? We know they're saved. He's writing this to the brethren who are scattered abroad. Well, James, the one that's writing this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Mary is his mother. Joseph was his father, where Jesus' father was God. So this is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to one of two groups of people. He's either writing to his natural brothers and sisters, in other words, Jesus' other half-brothers and sisters, and we know he had some. We don't know how many, but we know he had some. Because the disciples said, your brothers and sisters are outside with Mary. They're, they're looking for you. So he's got brothers and sisters. He had half-brothers and sisters here on the earth. So James is either writing to that group of people, which would be a small group, you know, what, four or five people maybe, or he's writing to people that are his spiritual brothers in Christ. Now, which one do you think he's writing to? Well, of course he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the people that are born again. And he's saying that those to those people that are born again, that their souls have not been saved. Well, wait a minute. I thought when we got saved, we were born again. We were recreated in spirit. Yeah, but it doesn't. the new birth has nothing, has no effect, uh, no immediate effect, no automatic effect upon your soul or your body. It changes you inside. The responsibility of the change that takes place in your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions, and in your body is up to you, and the Bible puts that under your charge. I can prove that to you from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, look with me over there to verses 1 and 2 and uh, maybe even 3. I don't know. We'll see. Romans chapter 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Brethren's got to be brothers and sisters. In Christ, Christians, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's not commanding them. He's not saying God is going to get you if you don't. He's saying you should use the mercies, the goodness of God, as an incentive for this thing I'm about to tell you to do. It's not some heavy-handed do it or else. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate the last phrase instead of reasonable service. They translate that spiritual worship. Here's a part of spiritual worship. Here's a part of worshiping God in spirit. You doing something with your body. Now, most of the charismatics that talk about worshiping in spirit, being singing in tongues, don't want to hear this part. Because this is the part that's hard. It's fun to sing and praise in God in tongues and, and speak in tongues and pray in tongues. It's fun to do that. Man, I mean, it'll get you all charged up on the inside if you stick with it long enough. But then after all that's over and you have to say no to sin and, and discipline your body, I haven't heard anybody jumping up and down saying, oh, boy, isn't this a joyful time? <laughs> well, the Bible talks about that as being pruning a tree. 
It speaks of the example of cutting away dead wood on a tree so that it can be fruitful and grow more. Well, I don't want to cut things off of me, do you? He's not talking about cutting things away physically, but he's talking about cutting physical things away from your life. Things that hinder you spiritually. Things that will hinder you from the things of God. The writer of Hebrews talked about this thing, same thing in chapter 12. We're not going to leave Romans 12 yet, but let me refer to this one. Chapter 12, it says, laying apart from your, setting yourself apart from the, the weights and the sins which do so easily beset us. Run our race with joy. What's he talking about? He's talking about put away the things that hinder you spiritually. Folks, that's not a fun thing to do. It's a profitable thing to do, but it's hardly ever any fun. Because the only reason that they're involved or a part of your life now is because you enjoy them. So he's saying desire the right things, desire spiritual things, desire things that will make you closer to God and help you walk more in the things of God instead of the things that your body might enjoy doing. Now, there are some things that are weights and there are some things that are sins. Sins are more easily identified than weights are. And weights are a whole lot easier justified than sins are. Some things aren't sinful, they just hold you back. Some things are just wrong. They're just contrary to the word of God. Now here, you get a lot of problems nowadays because you start talking about sins and start talking about weights and how people ought to live. Everybody will start claiming you're judging me. Well, guess what? I am. That's what the Bible says to do. Now, I'm not judging you as an individual, but I'm judging things to be right or wrong according to the word. When did that ever become a wrong thing to do? Man, you got a, a generation nowadays that are saying, well, you're just judging me. Gay marriage is wrong. You're just judging people. No, I'm judging gay, gay marriage to be sin. I'm judging homosexuality to be sin. Why? Because God said so. God said of Sodom and Gomorrah their sin was grievous. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but that sounds pretty bad to me. If God says that what, you can't find anywhere else in Scripture that I'm aware of where God says one sin is worse than another. He said this is a grievous sin. Homosexuality is a grievous sin. Well, folks, I'll refer to the Scripture that we all agreed on a little bit ago. God said, I am God, I change not. So you got a lot of people that are saying nowadays, well, that's just Old Testament. No, it's not. It's God. God's not any different under the New Testament than He is in the Old Testament. Homosexuality is wrong. Well, but you're just judging people. No, I'm not. I'm judging the sin of homosexuality to be wrong. Listen, I don't care if two men or two women get together and put anything they want in any place they want to put it. Personally, that doesn't bother me. I don't care. But don't call it marriage. And don't say it's not sin. Where's the adultery lobby? Where are the people that are involved in adultery saying, don't judge adultery to be wrong. We enjoy it. Where are those folks? Let's include adultery as part of marriage. That's stupid. Everybody knows that's stupid. What's the same thing with gay marriage though, isn't it? People taking a sin, something the Bible says obviously is sin. Now folks, God's not trying to take away something that's, that's good from people. He's trying to take away something that destroys people's lives. He's trying to warn you about things that will destroy your life. He's not trying to take away something good. Well, but we just love each other. 
Pastor Mike, these are just loving couples. What does that have to do with anything? We're not talking about the people. We're talking about the action. The action is sin. The Bible says, lay aside every weight and every sin that does so easily beset us. And it's not popular. And the more you talk about this, the more unpopular you get. That's okay. People don't like me anyway. I'm the perfect person for this. Folks, what's wrong is wrong. Now, here's something that the world has always had a problem with. You remember Jesus standing before Pilate? Jesus said, uh, forgive me, I'm going all over the place, but hopefully the Holy Ghost will help us wrap this up. You remember Jesus standing before Pilate? Pilate's questioning him. And he said, you know, have you, are you a king? Have you done the things that they said and claimed to be a king and so forth? And Jesus said, I have one purpose that I was sent into the earth for. That one purpose was to bear witness of the truth. He said, everyone that is of the truth receives my word. Pilate's answer, do you remember what Pilate responded? He said, what is truth? Folks, the world always has a problem with truth. And it does one of two things. It either denies it or tries to redefine it. The world always has a problem with truth. If you're going to worship God, you're going to have to worship him in spirit and in truth. That means you're going to have to cut away all this middle ground. Well, maybe, I don't know, I guess maybe that'd be okay. You know, gay marriage, God just loves everybody. Sure, he loves everybody. But the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, period. God loves adulterers just like he loves homosexuals. But it's still sin. And for anybody to say that it's not, it's just out of their mind. They're not reading the Bible. Now, they may be doing what the world does and say, well, what is truth? You know, what's true for you may not be true for me. You're attracted to women. I'm attracted to others. So we have different truths. No, we don't. The truth is true. It doesn't change. Now, you can ignore it if you want to. You can deny it if you want to. But don't tell me you have a constitutional right to redefine marriage because of it. You know, the Constitution, that thing that we used to have as a guarantee of freedoms. Watch that thing go bye-bye. So we're supposed to lay aside the weights and the sins which do so easily beset us. Homosexuality, adultery, lying, stealing, any sin, anything that identifies is identified in Scripture as a sin will hold you back from spiritual development. Not because God holds it against you, but because you can't have confidence to grow in God if you're participating in something you know is sinful. But what about weights? Weights are things that are not sinful but still will hold you back. Lack of discipline in your body is a weight that will hold you back. I know I believe God a whole lot easier when my pants fit than when they don't. I'm sorry, that's just the way it works. I preach better, I pray better, I have greater confidence toward God when my pants fit. It's a simple fact. When I've let myself get out of shape, when I let myself gain too much weight and don't do something about it, I don't feel the same. Now, does anything change with God? No. But I know that if I don't discipline myself in one area of life, it's easier for me to not to discipline myself in another area of life. And you'll always find that. You'll find that if somebody is really out of, out of whack in an extreme undisciplined area in their life, there's always going to be something that it bleeds over in into another area. I found that if I can keep myself disciplined in every area of life, it's easier for me to be spiritually disciplined. 
It's just the way it works. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with TV, watching TV. But if you can watch TV to the point where it takes you away from the things of God, and that will be a weight in your life. It'll be something that hinders you. It's not sin. It just holds you back. Well, if we want first and foremost in our lives to be uh, to be close to God, to develop in the things of God, then shouldn't we want to put away the things that hold us back? That's what the Bible's talking about. That's what Paul in the Hebrews, or the Holy Spirit, whoever in, uh, wrote the book of Hebrews, again, like I said, I think it's Paul. But whoever the Holy Spirit inspired to write the book said that very thing, lay aside the weights and the sins which do so easily beset us. Have uh, you still in Romans chapter 12? That's what it's talking about in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. Here's step number one to worshiping God in spirit. Discipline your flesh. Might as well just start off with the hard one. Now, what do we have in the body of Christ? We've got a lot of people that refuse to discipline their flesh who are trying to be guides and teachers and, and, and leaders in, in the church. And what happens? That lack of discipline always causes them to fall, and then people are hurt. How many times have we seen it? Over and over and over again. People will fall either sexually, people will fall to their diet, they'll die early because of heart attacks or whatever because they don't take care of the body. Whatever the case is, they'll get undisciplined in certain areas. And so many times it comes as a result of success in ministry. Somebody's ministry will start blowing and going, it'll explode, people will start following them from all over the place and they'll get to thinking that everything they say and everything they do is right. Well, folks, I've got the same responsibility to do what the Bible says in my own life, whether there's one person in my church or a million people in my church. I don't get a pass just because the crowd grows. You don't get a pass just because healing works in your in your life or you, you've uh, prospered in your business or something like that. Nobody gets a pass. We have the same responsibility for as long as we're here on the earth, and that is to bring our bodies under discipline, bring our bodies, make our bodies subject to the Word of God, live our lives physically in line with what the Bible says to do. It amazes me some of these fat preachers who will eat like a cow and then believe God for healing. Their arteries are so clogged they can't get a drop of blood through them. And they're believing God for healing. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if you just ate right, you'd probably help yourself out a lot there, you know. Folks, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to live disciplined lives. Now, you can get to, too far on the other end of that, too. I've seen some preachers that are health nuts. They go to such extremes that they start preaching diet. They start preaching weight loss plans and stuff like that. Well, that's nuts. I don't want to be extreme on anything except God. And I want to be an absolute fanatic for Him. But you know what I found out? I found out the more fanatical I get about God and the things of God, the more steady it makes me in life. The less it makes me look like a kook. And the more it brings me into an even keel in every aspect of life. Well, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice number two. The step two is in the second verse. Here's step two to worshiping in spirit. He said, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, isn't it interesting that he's talked to Christians, people whose spirits have been born again. He's talking to Christians about two things. Those that have been recreated in the image of God, those whose spirits have been made righteous, those who are obviously headed for heaven. As soon as this life is over, he says, do something about your body and do something about your mind. What does that tell us? That tells us the new birth doesn't touch either of those two areas. Now, remember what he what we started off with in first Thessalonians chapter five. I beseech, uh, what do you say? I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, soul, and body. Two of those areas are not affected by the new birth. The body and the soul, the body and the mind are not affected by the new birth. Only the spirit is. So he says, be not conformed to this world. In other words, there's a way that the world operates. In the intellectual realm, in the area of reason, there's a way that the world operates and the Bible says, don't follow that. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what would God want you to be transformed into? What would it make sense that God would want us to be transformed into? Well, the Bible says he wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ, doesn't it? It's other, in other words, it's saying, here's the only way you're ever going to do what Jesus did and think what Jesus thought and operate the way that Jesus operated. Renew your mind to the word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. The word prove means to determine by experience that you may prove or experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God in your life. Here's the division between spirit and soul. And the word's the only thing that can do it. Now turn back with me. Let's, uh, I've used up a lot of my time, so I don't want to, I don't want to go too long with this. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter three. You remember the story of creation. We talked a little bit about this last week, I believe it was. Story of creation. God makes everything, makes the animals, makes everything, finally creates an environment for man. I love the fact that God made everything first and then put man in the middle of it. He didn't make man first and say, all right, sit back and watch. Or he didn't make man and say, all right, now I want you to do this part. This is, this is your, your responsibility, your part. He didn't do any of that. God created a place for man and then said, now you're in charge. <laughs> I love that. That's the way God operates. He wants your partnership, but he doesn't need your work. He'll do the work if you'll partner with him. Now, when he made man... He created man in a different way in that he breathed into man and man became a living soul, the scripture says. Now, again, the word soul has to mean something more than just the mind, the will, and the emotions. He made God, uh, God formed man's body from the dust of the earth. In other words, he formed it just like you would form something with clay. Two arms, two legs, two hands, two feet, one head, two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two ears. He made the form of man. He made a body. It looks like man was a corpse when God finished creating him. And then he breathed into him. I don't know exactly how that worked. Maybe he stood man up, you know, held him under his armpits and breathed him his own breath into him. I don't know if it came about in some other way than that. But in some form, in some way, in some manner, God put his spirit inside man. 
That's what made God, uh, that's what made man different than any other creature. Everything else, God just said, be and live. With man, he breathed into him. Man's the only thing that has an element of the spirit of God in him. Or did. And man became a living soul. Now, what did God tell man? Well, the first thing he did is he said, everything that I've made is under your control. You have authority over the earth. He brought the animals to him. He said, now name these. The intellectual capacity of man was instantaneous. He didn't put Adam in school. Who's going to teach him other than God? But there was no teaching. There was no learning. There was no learning curve. Adam instantly knew what God knew because God's spirit was within him. So his mind, his will, and his emotions are intact, but they're based on the spirit that God has breathed in him. Please understand that. He doesn't have any natural learning, natural experience to unlearn. He doesn't have a way of the world to overcome like you and I do. He doesn't have some religious training that he's got to step out of the way or get push out of the way so that now he can see what the Bible really says. He didn't have any of that. He knows everything instantly because of the source of his information being his spirit. What he feels is based on the spirit of God within him. What he chooses and what he desires is based on the spirit of God within him. Now, folks, there's a real interesting scripture in Psalm 23. You know this verse of scripture. You may not have taken the psalm apart to think about it, but one of the things that the Bible talks about, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, etc. That's a picture of the church age. Here's our shepherd. Here's what he does for us. One of those verses, I'm not sure even what number it is, maybe verse 4, verse 5, something like that. It said, he restoreth my soul. He restoreth my soul. What does it mean to restore something? Well, if you restore an old car, that means you bring it back to its original condition. If you restore a piece of furniture, it means you bring it back to its original condition. Where the Bible says that God restores our soul, not our spirit. God does not restore your spirit. He recreates your spirit in the new birth. He makes you a new creature in Christ Jesus. But the soul is a different matter. The mind, the will, and the emotions. That's our definition for the soul. Those elements that make up the soul, the Bible says God restores. He brings back to our its original condition. Well, what was man's original condition? Adam in the Garden of Eden. So that what we know is based on the Spirit of God, not based on human learning or training. So that what we feel is based on the Spirit of God within us, not emotions that are moved by circumstance. And so that what we will or choose is based on the Spirit of God within us and not what anybody else thinks or circumstances that surround us. That's restoration to its original condition. Now notice, let's talk about the original condition, the original state of man. God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden. He names the animals. He finds out there's nothing there that he can fellowship with. So God makes Eve. From that point on, Adam and Eve are in fellowship. Now, I don't know how long they were in the Garden of Eden before they fell. If we kind of have the idea that, you know, God made man on uh, uh, the sixth day by day eight or nine, they're gone. They could have been there for thousands of years, folks. There could have been whole races of people that they've given birth to. It wouldn't matter because everybody fell when Adam fell because he's the originator. He's the head, the federal head of mankind. But however long they were there, they certainly had enough information about how things work. He's walking with God in the cool of the day throughout the garden. I'm assuming that he's asking God questions, but that assumption is based on the fact that he wouldn't already know. Maybe he already knows. If I was Adam, 
thinking with a natural mind. I'm thinking, all right, I'd want to know how you did this. How'd you make the sun? Now, I know you just said sun be or light be or whatever, but no, how'd you make that thing? That thing looked like it's on fire. What'd you do? But maybe he already knew. Maybe he had the totality of knowledge within him about the things that he had authority over. I don't know. But those, either way, those talks in the cool of the day throughout the, walking throughout the garden have got to be some interesting things. I'd love to have the tapes of that. The purpose for it is fellowship. Now, folks, I want you to understand. God did not say to man, here's how you fellowship with me in spirit. Why not? If God never changes and God seeks those to fellowship with him in spirit and truth or worship him with him in spirit and truth, worship him in spirit and truth, why wouldn't he have given Adam instruction on that? God was the same then as he is now. Why wouldn't he have told Adam about how that works? Because there was no alternative. That's the only way Adam could fellowship. Now, please understand, he had fellowship in other ways, but not on the same level. Any dog he scratched behind the ears, he's fellowshipping with that dog, but he's fellowshipping with that dog on a physical level. Any cat that jumps up in his lap and he strokes until the cat purrs, he's fellowshipping with that cat on a spiritual level. I'm sorry, on a physical level, not a spiritual level. Right? But Eve is different. He can fellowship with her not only on a physical level, but on a a soulish level. He can reason with her. We're assuming God made her with a brain. (laughs) Ooh, ouch. Okay. No, actually, I can prove that by the Bible. Stick with me. You may not like what you hear, but stick with me. But he can fellowship with her on a physical level. He can fellowship with her on an intellectual level. He can fellowship with her on an emotional level. They can bring their wills in line so he can fellowship with her uh, uh, according to their wills. That makes up the soul, the three elements that make up the soul. And he can fellowship with her on a spiritual level too. And when it comes to God, there's only one way they can fellowship with God, and that is on a spiritual level. Now, again, I'm taking into account my lack of knowledge about how things work. Okay? We could certainly argue that he could fellowship with God on a reason level or on an intellectual level too. I'm not exactly sure how that would work. But he's in God's class of being. My point is very simply this. God did not give Adam instruction on how to fellowship with him in spirit. Why? Because Adam is a spirit. There's nothing to hinder any other... uh, There's nothing to hinder fellowshipping with God in spirit. That's the only thing available to him. What happens? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, let's start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. This, uh, this translation is, uh, is really poor in my, my opinion. The word serpent literally means deceiver. Where they got snake from that, I have no idea. It does not mean snake. A snake can be an example of something that deceives because it looks one way but has a poisonous bite to it. But there is nothing in and of itself in the word that says serpent or snake. It comes from the root word enchanter, something that appears to be one thing but is instead something else. It says that he was more subtle than any other beast of the field. The word beast is literally living thing. I personally do not believe that Adam that uh, uh, Satan showed up in the garden of Eden as a snake. 
I believe that Satan showed up in the Garden of Eden looking better than Adam did. Literally, the word beast means shining one. There was something about this creature that drew Eve's attention. This is not some puppy that you scratch behind the ears. She looks at this thing and recognizes there's something different about him. She may look at him, look at Adam and say, wow. Something caused her to listen to Satan instead of Adam. Something drew her attention. I don't know what it is. I'm just throwing out some possibilities based on the language. But it wasn't a snake. Forget the snake. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, folks, would she be answering a cow like this? If a cow mooed and said, As God said, you can't eat of that tree, would she have stopped and explained to him? See, here's another indication that maybe, and I'm just saying maybe, is an indication that maybe there were already people that were on the earth Generations that had been born up until that time. Who else is she going to be talking to? Adam's named all the animals. He's seen everything that's there. If this is some creature, if this is some four-legged beast, or if this is some snake or lizard-looking thing that starts talking, is Adam not going to know? Is Eve not going to know? Hey, this is unusual. Now, I'm sorry for making you think. I know it's a new experience for some. But this is, the, the story reads like this is some common occurrence. Why would it be a common occurrence? There's got to be a reason. If it is a common occurrence, there's got to be a reason why. Doesn't there? She carries on a conversation with this guy. Maybe Adam and Eve are not the only people around at that point in time. I don't know. But she starts explaining things to him. Why? She and Adam are in charge. What does she need to talk to anybody else about? So the serpent said unto the woman, verse 4, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes... And a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. Now, folks, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talking about speaking in tongues, he says this. He makes a statement that goes beyond just tongues. He says, there are many voices in the air and none are without signification. He's saying every voice is significant. Every voice in the world is significant. Do you know why Eve fell? And then partnered with her husband to do the same because she listened to two voices. First, she listened to the voice of reason. We usually use that term, that phrase, voice of reason, as a real positive thing. Well, son or or daughter, listen to the voice of reason. Don't just run off and do something impulsively. Listen to the voice of reason. Folks, reason is the voice of the mind. And the voice of reason 
unless it's renewed to the word of God, is not a safe guide. That's the way the world operates. That's what Romans 12, 2 tells us not to be conformed unto. So this idea about reason, now don't get me wrong, the Bible talks about the renewing of the mind, not the removing of the mind. I see too many Christians that are trying to live without a brain. For some, it seems real natural. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about judging the voice of reason by the word of God. Reason is a good thing. God gave you a mind to use. But that mind is intended to be restored back to its original condition where the source of information, in other words, so that the voice of reason is based on what the word of God says and not what the world does. Now, here's the problem. Same problem that we see with Pilate questioning Jesus. Well, what is truth? Here's what the devil's doing. Here's where it starts. The devil's saying, you don't really think that's going to happen the way God said, do you? And then he throws in something that's so outlandish. He says, God knows that the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. Did God not create them in his image? Do they not already know that? Are they not smart enough to figure out that God didn't have to put the tree in the middle of the garden to begin with? If it's such an important thing that God is trying to keep them away from to protect his own position, why didn't he make the tree? They know he made it. See, folks, here's the problem with the voice of reason. The voice of reason only goes so far. The voice of reason doesn't include knowledge from the word of God. All she's got to do is rely on, at this point, before she eats, all she has to do is rely on the things that she knows because she heard from God himself. And she's safe. Why didn't she question the devil? Why didn't she say, wait a minute. God's not trying to keep us from being like him. He made us like him. Who are you? And how do you know what God knows? We're the ones made in his image. Our knowledge is based on his spirit within us because he breathed on the inside of us and made us alive. How do you know what he knows? Those would have been real simple questions to ask to stay safe. They're the same simple questions you can ask today to say, stay safe from the devil's temptation now. But so many times people ignore that because they don't know to renew their minds to the word or they haven't taken the time to do it. So the first thing she listens to is the voice of reason. She considers what he says, even though what he says is an absolute lie. He's not looking out for her best interest. In other words, just because something looks good doesn't mean it is good. That's true for dating, young people, by the way. Second voice she listens to is her flesh. When she saw the tree, notice how it says. After she's listened to the voice of reason, verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what does that tell us? That tells us she has never really looked at it before. Why? Because she's operated on what? God told them to do. If she's not going to eat from the tree, why bother looking at it? But when she first considered, when she listened to the voice of reason, which was a lie, but when she listened to the voice of reason, then she started considering it from a physical standpoint. She allowed her emotions to carry her into the physical. 
she started looking at the tree. Hmm. Well, he says that we'll be like God if we eat this tree. Wow. Never noticed it before, but that fruit really does look good. Hmm. What a dilemma. You know what tips the scales for? The next phrase. When she saw, number one, that it was good to eat, and number two, that it was desired to make one wise. You know what this corresponds to? This corresponds to the idea that you've got to experience something to know what it's really like. Young people don't fall for that. Old people, you've already fallen for that. <laughs> but don't fall for it again. There's this idea, and it starts in youth. There's this idea that you really should experience everything in the world so that then you can choose what you want. Well, the problem with that is the problem that Eve found. And that is, once you experience something, you ring a bell in your life that you cannot unring. Don't you know that the instant that her eyes were opened or the instant following the eyes, her eyes being opened, don't you know she wished she could have put that fruit back on the tree? Let's take this thing back up, turn it around where they can't see the bite. Don't you know she wished at that moment that she hadn't listened to this stupid good-looking thing, whatever it was? She wished that she had never looked at that tree, never let her emotions Get, get the best of her in this thing. Don't you know she wished she could have undone that instantly? That's the way it works with sin, folks. The devil will hound you day after day, week after week, month after month until you give in. And then as soon as you give in, you instantly wish you'd never done that. There are many voices in the world and none are without signification. What voices did she listen to? She listened to the voice of reason and she listened to the voice of her flesh. And that's why they fell. Now, the Bible says she was deceived. The Bible says Adam was not. That says to me that Adam followed her in, not because he thought what she thought or listened to the voice of reason or listened to the voice of his flesh. He was pulled by something else. Well, what would have pulled her, him in? I believe he saw his wife fall. And because God had joined them together, I believe he followed her. Why else would he have gone? If the Bible says he wasn't deceived, she was, but he wasn't, why else would he have done it? Who's going to jump off that cliff if not for her? But, folks, that's just as wrong as what she did. You cannot put somebody else more in a, in a higher place of priority in your life than God, even if it's somebody that you love. And so what happens? They both fall. Now, from that point forward, they are tainted by the knowledge of good and evil, which is what God never wanted them to know. He never wanted them to experience the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at it for yourself. <clears throat> there is good and evil. There will always be good and evil in the world. There was good and evil in the world at that time that they were created. Satan had access, obviously. So that means there was evil in the world. God's plan for the original creation was not to create a world that was free from evil or free from the presence of evil, but to create a man or mankind that would live above the evil that is present. That's still his plan today. If that were not his plan, then as soon as we got saved, he'd take us to heaven so that we'd be separated from any presence of evil. So what do we do now? 
Adam can't fellowship with God in spirit anymore. There is no word of God that comes to him. God does a couple of things for him. He makes a sacrifice, creates skins, animal skins for both of them to be clothed with. Well, what was the purpose of the skins? I believe that was the leftover from the sacrifice. He makes a sacrifice for their sin by shedding the blood of an animal. They've never seen an animal die up to that point in time. I believe he showed them exactly how it works. We know that by the time that uh, Cain and Abel come around, they know about making sacrifices. Where'd they learn? How would they have learned if not from their parents? But we have no record whatsoever of any word of the Lord coming to them. There is no law of God given to them from that point in time. Just the example of the sacrifice to cover their sins. So how do they fellowship with God? They're driven out of the garden. They can't walk with God in the cool of the day anymore because they're driven out of the garden. How do they fellowship with God? Folks, from that moment forward, there is only one way that's made available for man to fellowship with God, and that is by his word. Everything about the law of Moses, everything about the covenant God made with Abraham, everything about the covenant that God made with Noah is based on the word that God gave them. That's why... Jesus said in John 4, 24, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That means very simply this. Let me wrap this up. That means very simply this. Any reason, any intellectual argument, any voice that you hear, whether it's from within you or from within you, meaning from your own mind or from somebody else's position, any argument of reason that does not line up with the word of God, you are separating yourself and doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did. You're worshiping what the world says to do instead of what God says to do. We look at Adam and Eve and say, man, I can't believe they did that. If that was me, I never would have. You do it every day. You make the same choice to listen to what the world says, which is governed by the spirit of this world, which is governed by the God of this world, who the Bible says is Satan. Instead of judging what you hear and judging the intellectual arguments that can be made by what the Bible says. We think of worship as coming together in church and, 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 and having a special feeling and lifting our hands before to the Lord and singing great songs and, and having the presence of God. We think of all that as worship. Folks, That may be a worship experience, but that's not worship. Worship is the way you live your life. Worship is the way you live your life. Are you living your life based on what the Bible says? Or are you doing what everybody else does? Or are you just, are you mixing the two together? That's where most Christians seem to be to me. They seem to be mixing things together. They mix together what the Bible says to get saved. So that their spirits are recreated. But then when it comes to the renewing of the mind, it's kind of like, well, let's, let's see what everybody says and we'll choose the best argument. I'm not one to take counseling sessions very often. I have to know somebody and have to know the situation. But I'll always talk to somebody, people that call the office, and a lot of times it's people from outside the church. And, uh, and well, actually, we do this with people that do call from outside the church. I saw Pastor Mike on TV and I want to talk to him. Can I come by the office and talk to him? No. Absolutely not. Just because you've got a TV set does not mean you own an hour of my time. Now, I know that sounds unloving to a lot of people, but it's just not going to happen. But we'll always tell people that I'll be glad to meet with them after a service. 
Well, I don't want to come to church. I think I know your problem. And so sometimes people will come. And they'll come and they'll, they'll wait, you know, hang around. I need, you know, talk to people after service and stuff like that. But if you're, if you're willing to wait, I'll be glad to spend as much time with you as we need to to take care of the situation. And so people will wait sometimes and they'll come and they'll talk to me and they'll say, I need counsel on this. And they'll tell me about the job or their marriage or whatever it is. And they want me to tell them what they ought to do. And my first question is, what does the Bible say? And they hardly ever know. And then the second question is, who else have you talked to about this? That's where the list comes out. Well, I talked to Pastor So-and-so. Then I talked to Pastor So-and-so. And I called this ministry on the phone and got a counselor, and they told me this. And it goes through the whole big thing. And I said, and you're waiting to see what I have to say, and if you like what I say better than what you've already heard, then you'll do that, right? And they'll say, well, not exactly, but yeah. And that's what so much of this is. It's people trying to get the best argument for what they, uh, what they want to do anyway. If I can just find a preacher that will tell me to do what I already want to do, then I can say, well, I was just following good counsel. Folks, that's the voice of reason. That's what we're to, conf- to be transformed. Our minds are to be transformed from. It, it, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, people, bless their hearts, they, they don't. Uh, a lot of people don't know how to talk to me. I've heard that I'm intimidating. Don't laugh. I worked a long time to get that way. No, really. But I, 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 that sounds funny to me because I'm not trying to intimidate anybody. But a lot of times people will say, you know, well, I, I just don't know how to talk to you. I, I just don't. But, but you have all the answers. Folks, I don't have all the answers, but I've got a book that does. I've got a book that's got all the answers. And it's an amazing thing if you'll just accept what the book says to do. It just works like magic. I really hate to use that term because magic doesn't even compare. But it works supernaturally if you just do what the Bible says to do. And when you live your life, when you operate day by day by day, according to what the Bible says that we should do, that's worshiping God in spirit. When we discipline our bodies into what the Bible says that we should, to put spiritual things first, put eternal things first, that's worshiping in spirit. It's not about coming to a church and getting into a great praise service. I love praise and worship music. I love getting the presence of God in, in, in church. I love all that. But a lot of times what people are doing is you've got musicians that are performing. And then we say, wasn't that a great worship experience? And there may not been, have been any worship involved in it at all. They may have been singing songs that were about emotions or how we feel toward God or whatever. There's no worship in that. There's no worship in that. Singing a song, Precious Jesus, Don't Forget Me. It's contrary to the word. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. There's no worship in that. I don't care what what tune you sing it to. There's no worship in that. Because it's not based on the word. Folks, God wants us to worship us in our lives. When Jesus said God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. When it says true worshipers worship it in spirit and truth and that's what God is seeking. He's talking about lives that are lived based on the word of God. Lives that are lived from your spirit, your heart, the eternal part of man. And not just from the world's way of thinking that we may be trained by. 
That's spiritual worship. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a service. It's not just an experience. It's a lifestyle. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, folks. When you make that determination and start following through on it, that's when you see the power of God experienced in your life. That's where you see things really start to change. That's where you see you th- see yourself grow spiritually by leaps and bounds. And that's where you see God manifest himself without hesitation. Because he does all these things according to his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the great and wonderful things that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've recreated us in spirit. And Father, we thank you that you've made a way for us to renew our minds to your word so that we can be transformed into the very image of Jesus himself. We thank you, Father, for the power that we have in life, the power over sin that we may discipline our bodies, our mortal flesh, to bring it in line with your will, your plan, and your purpose here in this earth. We love you, Father. We thank you for the victory that's ours. We thank you that there is no situation that is greater than the power that we have in the name of Jesus. There is no circumstance that's greater than the power of the word. There is no attack of the enemy that can overcome the truth of your word when we apply it in our lives. Thank you, Father, that victory is ours. Not based on emotion, not based on a feeling, based solely on the word of God, which will never fail. Thank you, Father, that you have restored us through the sacrifice of Jesus and by your word to the original condition of authority that you gave to Adam and Eve. We love you, Father. We thank you for your victory. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand together. Don't forget uh, prayer schools today at uh, 5 o'clock in the the fellowship hall. Healing schools tonight at 6 o'clock here in the auditorium. If you can come be with us, we encourage you to do so. I know the word will be a blessing to you. Amen. Amen. Say this after me. Victory is mine mine. In in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.